We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Jeff Greenfield, a serial entrepreneur who has worked as a magician, chiropractor, and product placement guru, among other things. His current venture is Provolytics. Jeff started out wanting to be a magician when he saw one perform at Disney World when he was just five years old. And that's what he did, putting on shows while he was still in grade school. He went on to college for biochemistry, and while he considered trying to be a magician professionally, instead he became a chiropractor. He had a thriving practice until an injury forced him to find another career. This gave him the opportunity to dive into professionally performing as a magician, getting gigs on college campuses. At the time, the internet was in its infancy, but he realized the importance of having a website in order to market himself. After trying to hire someone to build one who failed to do so, he figured out how to do it himself in a weekend. Before he knew it, he was being hired to build websites for other businesses. The next step was to figure out how to get businesses on the web to rank higher which led him to develop an understanding of how SEO works. He worked with a developer to create an automated SEO platform as well. Though he focused, found success, and was having fun, Jeff wasn't content to stay where he was. He worked in product placement and branding, but soon his projects led him to ask how to better measure the efficiency of the marketing he was doing. The results was C3 Metrics, a platform that worked with companies like J.P. Morgan, Hertz, and Nestle. Jeff next tried joining a company's management team, but while he learned a lot, it didn't suit him. (laughs) He realized that new challenges in the area of marketing measurement brought about by new regulations was an untapped opportunity. So Jeff found Provolytics to help companies find 
new ways to approach marketing analytics without the benefit of cookies and other tracking tools. Now, let's get better together. Jeff Greenfield, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm excited to talk with you. You are the CEO of Provalytics, which is all about analytics for enterprise and something that I'm actually very keen to talk about because my day job has a lot to do with analytics and trying to figure out how to make that all work. And it's more complicated than I would have thought. And it's a real art and science to figure that stuff out. And with all the inundation of data, just it's only going to get more and more important to have like experts um, figure that out. So uh, looking forward to that. Uh, but before we get into all the geeky stuff, which maybe will put people to sleep, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, as I always like to say, my first question never changes. I'm so consistent at it. I'm not a flip flopper at all. Tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Well, that's. Uh, I hope you've got time for this one because I got all the time in the world, my friend. Keep on, keep it up, keep going. Well, I, I like to go back and and go back pretty far. Uh, I started my career, and I think my career as an entrepreneur started when I was five with a visit to Disney in Orlando. They had this magic shop on the right in Main Street, and I walked in there, and a magician put these two bunnies in my hand and waved a magic wand and said abracadabra. And I opened my hand and there were all these baby bunnies in there. And I was, I was hooked. And a, a lot of kids get hooked on magic, but I, I got really hooked and, and it never, never let go. And when I went back home and I was living in uh, Florida at the time, uh, my parents found other kids that were interested in magic. We found this local magic shop and there were these older kids there that were like doing magic shows and at this point, I was around seven and they had business cards. And I told my parents I needed business cards at seven. And by the time I was eight or nine, I was doing one to two birthday parties every weekend. I think I was first getting $5 and then $25 and then eventually $75 for a kid's birthday party. I was doing pretty well with it. And it was it was great. And then eventually when I went to college, I was doing magic in restaurants uh, on a regular basis. And it was a lot of fun. I always, always did magic. And then I was at the time I was studying biochemistry at the University of Maryland. And I had an internship at the National Institutes of Health. I really wanted to go in the in the medical field. But most of the physicians in my family and in my extended family, their their lives were a mess, their personal lives. Their, their businesses were doing incredibly well, but their personal lives were just just horrendous. And I looked at that and I'm like, okay, I, I want to help people, but I don't want to be like that. And at the time I had hurt my back and I was seeing a chiropractor and I was like, okay, this is great. Cause the kind of magic I did was close up magic. And this guy used his hands and I thought this is perfect. So I moved across country to California and started grad school going to chiropractic college. And that also enabled me to achieve one of my huge dreams as like a five or a six-year-old, which was to perform at the Magic Castle in Hollywood, which was this private club only for magicians and all these celebrities were always there. It was, oh, I'm, it was, I'm familiar. I, I interviewed this guy, Dan Chan, who 
is a magician and he would do all these like zoom magicians, illusionists. I think, I don't remember what he calls. Oh, he's now the millionaire mentalist, I think. Oh, but wow. He, he, so what's funny is like you say the magic castle, um, Neil Patrick Harris, I think is a magician. And I didn't know this, obviously you watch Doogie Howser and you watch how I met your mother and everything, but yeah, I mean, talking to Dan and it's, it's just fascinating the magician community, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, but this is great. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So, so I got to perform there and, uh, used, uh, did a lot of performances in and around California. When I finished up chiropractic college, I was actually, magic was really taking off and I had an opportunity to go and work in Vegas. I was trying to decide, should I go to Vegas for a couple of years and pay off my student loans or should I go and open a practice? So decided to go the practice route, moved across country, opened up a, a practice in my home, built that up and was doing really well. Uh, loved it and thought, this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I imagined that my death was going to be in the middle of taking care of a patient. I would be 80 or 90 years old because it was like downstairs in my house. And, and to me, this was perfect. And then I got in a car accident and crushed my ulnar nerve, nerve, which is your funny bone nerve, and couldn't take care of patients anymore. And it was very, very painful and hired people to take care of the practice and started growing it because now other people were working there. And I went from two employees to about 50 employees very rapidly and realized very quickly that I absolutely hated it now. I, I liked taking care of patients. I liked doing the stuff. I did not like managing people. I'll never forget that. I, I People would come to me and they would say, hey, can I have this week off? And I'd say, yes, or these days off. And then someone else would come and said, I thought you told me I could have those days off. So then I'm like, okay, I need an HR person. So I hired an HR person. And then instead of the individual team members coming to me, the HR person would come to me with those same questions. And I'm like, okay, this is insane. I absolutely positively hate this. So I stopped going into the office and I would have them just fax me reports. I would get like 20 or 30 pages of stuff a day. And I was even more miserable. So my wife said, what, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I need to do a reset. I don't know what it's going to be, but I need to get out of this. So I got out of it and I said, I, I want to go back on the road and do magic. That's what I know. So I took about a year to year and a half and I toured colleges all over the country. And that was right around the time that the internet was really taking off. It was the mid to late 90s. And I, I knew that I needed a website and I was working through this. There's a college organization called NACA, the National Association of Collegiate at Activities. And, it, you know, if you remember when you go to college, you look at your, your tuition bill. Of course, most of us didn't look at it. We just sent it home. But there is in your tuition bill, there's this thing called your student activities fee. And it's not that much, but in aggregate, it's a lot of money. And then the folks that are in star in charge of student activities, they book performers and lecturers to come to campus. And NACA holds these conferences in the summertime where all these buyers come together and they do group buying. So one college would come and say, I'd like to have you. And if they get another college within driving distance, they all both save and they save on travel. So it works out real well for everyone. So I, I plan to go. I sent off a tape to this group and I was able to showcase at all of these conferences. And I was like, okay, this is great. Then I found out they were going to 
be uh, handing out this magazine. So I, I got a half page ad and I'm like, I got to do something with the internet. I need a website. So I saw in our local newspaper that there was this, that the newspaper was advertising that they had, they were making websites. So I called them and I went down there and told them what I wanted that, you know, I was a magician and I needed a website. This is for these college buyers. And they're like, okay, this is great. Listen, uh, you know, we're going to have a meeting with you again in like a week and a half, two weeks, we'll have something to show you. I said, great. So went back in about two weeks and they said, we have bought the, the website magic-magic.com because magic.com was taken. I said, great. And we've made, look at this great clip art that we've made. Like it was like a bunny coming out of a hat, just very stereotypical, silly magic stuff. And they said, come back in two weeks. We'll, we'll have it put together. So Meanwhile, I've, I've bought the ad and I've now put in magic-magic.com in there. So I'm kind of committed. And we had a series of meetings like every one to two weeks and things weren't moving ahead. And, and the first conference was coming up in about two and a half to three weeks and there was no website. So I said, guys, what's going on here? I, I need a website. And they're like, listen, you're our first customer and this is a lot more difficult than what we thought it was. And I'm like, well, you don't understand. I bought this ad. And I have the website address and these are college students. I need to have something. And they're like, well, listen, there's this program called Microsoft Front Page. It's like $400. It's available at Staples. Now, to me, the closest Staples was like an hour and a half away. So I hopped in my car and I drove to Staples and, and got this package, this software package. It was a CD-ROM with a really thick book of tutorials. So I did something I've never done still to this day. I sat in my basement all weekend and I did every single tutorial. The, the website company gave me the domain information and they had set up web hosting with some FTP, which I had no idea what that all that was. But by the end of the weekend, I did. And I had created my own basic website. You can actually go to archive.org and see it. And since I built it, when I went to these college conferences and then I started touring, um, I was able to update the website every week, sometimes a couple times a week, uh, which was really cool. And then other performers would say to me, my God, who's your webmaster? And then I would tell them, I said, well, I'm, I'm the webmaster. And they're like, oh my God, that's incredible. We have this issue. Do you think you can help us with this? And then every time they would say that, I would say, Oh yeah, I can definitely help you, but this is not what I'm doing. You know, I'm on this journey. I hurt myself. I'm trying to figure out what's going on in my life and but yeah, I can definitely hurt you. So over the course of that year and a half, I picked up a ton of consulting clients cuz I was on the road. I would leave every Sunday and fly someplace and not come home till Thursday. Not great for being married and having a young daughter. So I was anxious to get off the road and I was able to do that. So now I'm working from my basement at home and making websites and also helping like restate things, kind of a branding, if you will, helping people understand how to best present themselves. And then clients started asking, hey, listen, this is great. The website's great, but but I need it so that when people search for um, real estate for sale in, in Dayton, Ohio, that I show up, can you do that? And, I, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll figure it out. So I started learning SEO. And then I figured out with SEO that it's a lot of work. So there's got to be a way to automate it. So I worked with a programmer over in Singapore. 
and created one of the first automated SEO platforms. It was a little black hat. It used something called search engine cloaking, but it was very cool because clients could log in, they could list keywords, and then the platform would go out because we had thousands of domains and it would create these doorway pages with different domains and they could occupy the entire first one or two or even three pages of a search engine for any term they wanted. It was absolutely incredible. Really, really amazing. And we were lucky in the sense that I had a real estate person who used it, who ended up being in like a real estate management and worked out an affiliate program with them. And they promoted it all over the country. So as the real estate boom was taking off, we started to explode. And then we also had a write-up and entrepreneur and in a legal journal. And so we also started getting the emerging legal space as well. So we had a lot of lawyers and real estate agents. Those were primarily our clients. And it worked with all of the engines, even the early days of, of Google. And I was having a good time, but you know, when you're used to being on the stage and performing, and now you're working in your basement, and it wasn't a great basement either. Like the dryer and the washer was right near me and it was cold uh, down there. It wasn't heated either. And I lived up in New England. Um, so I was like, gosh, you know, I really miss the excitement of being part of the entertainment business. So I called a couple of friends of mine out in LA and I'm like, what's, what's the latest and greatest? What's going on? And I kept hearing product placement. Product placement is like a big deal. So I, I ordered, back then you could order yellow pages from different cities. So I ordered the yellow pages from LA and went through them and found these product placement firms and called up a couple of them and started talking to them. And I found out that these were typically uh, people who had been set designers for years, who had retired, knew the business well, and they could get stuff on on, on sets. And I started understanding that business, but I also found out that they didn't really speak advertising really well. They didn't understand what the needs of marketers and advertisers were, and they definitely didn't know how to come up with the value for this and equate it in terms of impressions and CPMs and GRPs and things like that. So I saw an opportunity and I said, I'm going to go in the product placement business. But all I knew was from a couple of phone calls and nobody knew I was in product placement, but I did know how to rank number one for just about any term that I wanted. So I hired a couple writers to write some articles about me, quoting me as a product placement expert. And within three or four months, any press article in the US that came out talking about product placement, I was quoted in it because the press was now using the internet to source people because they thought it was amazing. And I was like, wow, this is really incredible. And then before you know it, I had a bunch of clients and now... I'm speaking on panels with Mark Burnett from Survivor. And I'm like, this is this is really unbelievable. So I had these clients that are now getting stuff in TV and film, very excited about it. And then some clients would say, hey, this is awesome that Pamela Anderson is holding this tape measure of ours. How do we get her to mention it by name? Or how do we how do we go deeper with this? And I'm like, well, that's not product placement, that's branded entertainment. And you have to pay for the production. It's millions of dollars. It's not tens of thousands of dollars. And and so that would be always my pitch to clients. And I never had anybody say yes to that. But then eventually I did. I had a pharmaceutical company 
that was uh, had a competitor that was entering their market that they owned exclusively, and uh, they needed something really fast. So I pitched them on creating a faux reality TV show, uh, and they did it. They they financed the entire production of it. This is like pre housewives or anything like that. The show was called Hottest Mom in America. And we we built the whole show based upon strategic cities for them. It was the first branded entertainment piece that any uh, pharmaceutical company had ever done. It actually increased their market cap by about a half a billion dollars, got them back in the Wall Street Journal when they had been absent for three years. It was very, very exciting. And then right at the same time, I also had uh, Verizon Wireless that uh, took one of my programs and 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 went with it. It was called um, How Sweet the Sound. It was uh, an American Idol style contest for church choirs. And it was designed around the idea that Verizon uh, was doing really poorly in the African-American community. In fact, what the research has found is that they had hired almost every multicultural ad firm in the country. And the more they advertised, directly to that community, they would lose market share. And the reason they lost market share is because nobody believed them. It was so not authentic. Yeah, so they had, it wasn't authentic, right? Yeah, they had ads. They had their regular ads. And when they would go in an African-American community, they would just have African-Americans in the same ads. And people oh. looked at it and they said, Verizon, you guys are the white man's phone. I mean, that's, yeah. what, it, that's what it was. So this was authentic. It was embracing their community. And it was the only program that actually went on uh, to increase their market share, went on to win a bunch of awards. Uh, and that was really exciting. And I was like, wow, this is this is great. This is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to do branded entertainment. But the only problem with that as a business is that it would take six months to a year to sell it in. These are tens of millions of dollars programs. And it would take a year or more to execute. And then afterwards, you're like an actor. You're now unemployed again. And the other problem is, is that how do you measure the effectiveness of this? You can see stock price go up, but people could yeah. argue, hey, that, you know, how is this? Or can you say that this absolutely caused right. that? Yeah, so this I, attribution thing is so hard. Yes. So that's so when hard. I realized that so there's something to this measurement thing. And yep. At the time, I had a client that was doing a lot of ad buys digitally. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a publicly traded weight loss company called Metafast, just still around. They were actually number three. They were behind Weight Watchers and Nutrisystem. Uh, they're now way up ahead of them or equal with them as we speak today. Uh, but their problem was is that they were buying digital all on a CPA basis. And so what that meant is, is that every time a new order would be made, all of their five partners would all claim credit and say, pay me. So essentially for every order, they had five mothers or five fathers. And that got to be very costly. And the CEO said, hey, can you take a look at this and try to figure out what's going on? So I looked at it and I realized that there has to be a way because the, the way they were taking credit is they had a pixel on the thank you page that would then say, hey, you got a sale. So all they had to do was to what we called spray and pray, send out a bunch of, of, of ads, whether someone even saw it or not, didn't matter. And so if they had a huge reach like AOL did, they could just cash checks all day. So I, at the time, I was actually building out 
another platform. I had about five or six developers. So I took a couple of developers off of that and started building out a rudimentary uh, attribution platform that would also control for this, what we call deduplication. So there would only be one person who would get credit, but then it would also split credit up an early attribution platform because there was nothing else out there like that. Um, Built it out and uh, was able to help them scale their media up significantly. And I'll never forget the developers. They asked me in the beginning, is this going to be single tenant or multi-tenant? Meaning, is it going to just be for one customer? And I said, it's going to be single tenant because, you know, the only folks I'm going to work with are very large and they're going to want this installed in their data center. Because now remember, AWS was just starting, like Rackspace was huge. And when I first built this out, I built it out in a, in a private data center. Uh, so then I started saying, let me try this and see if some of my other contacts want this. And I'll never forget, I had a conversation with uh, someone who was head of marketing and I showed it to them. And I said, what do you think? And they're like, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, once you know, you can't not know, right? And they're like, yeah, this blows me away. And I'm like, okay, so listen, I've got one person using this. It's working really well. You know, why don't you try it for like 90 or 90 days or six months? And then we'll talk about what the value is to you. And they're like, absolutely not. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, well, because this is going to show that the stuff that I've been doing and recommending is not working. I don't want that. I need this <laughs> job, Jeff. Wow. Yeah, that's that's true. It I is mean, true. So, so yeah. then they said, now, listen, if my boss is at a conference and hears about this and tells me to use it, oh, uh, yeah, that's what I want to have happen. But right. no, I'm not going to do it. Right, right, well, right. And I had a bunch of those conversations. Eventually, I got a couple of people on to use it. And then I called my developer up and I said, remember that single tenant, multi-tenant? <laughs> so then it, Be became, multi. <laughs> it became multi-tenant. Right. And so built that up. Uh, and then, you know, we're in the early days of the internet now. This is like 2008. And and to, to put this into perspective for folks that are listening, uh, you know, 2001, 2002, uh, folks were saying like in the newspaper business and the TV business and in the radio business, they were like, can you believe those internet people were saying, we're going to go out of business? And it was only a couple of years later where things started to fall apart by 2006, yeah. Brands were starting to dip their toes in. And by 2008, business was really taking off for folks. Oh, and, yeah, for sure. And there were a lot of problems to solve along the way, such as viewability and all of those issues. And uh, built this company up and scaled it to where we had about 55 employees, uh, great growth. Uh, and, and, and most of our clients were large enterprise, like the JP Morgans, U.S. banks, uh, pharmaceutical companies, Purple Mattress, DraftKings, all big names, uh, and got to see the inside of how those marketing teams work and see the challenges that they faced. So I left there in 2019. I had done all that I could do. Uh, so right before the pandemic, I I left and then tried to figure out what I was going to do next. I, I Started building a, another startup for uh, lead generation. I actually spent a couple of months relearning PHP to code. And because I was fascinated, the reason I, I, I was building this lead thing is that I was fascinated with the auto space. 
I've always been fascinated with the local markets, the challenges that they have. And then a friend of mine who is a CEO of a large uh, TV company called Wide Orbit, he reached out to me and we started talking every couple of weeks for about six months. And, you know, he was looking to, you know, grow out a new division on the buy side of marketing because his product was primarily the sell side and wanted me to come in to do that. But I'd never worked for anyone ever in my life and I wasn't sure about it. So I discussed it with my wife and she's like, listen, you've spent your entire life building teams. You've never actually been part of one. Why don't you try it for a year or so and and see what you think? So at 55, I took my first job uh, and it was kind of cool. There was actually a couple of really good things from it. The first was for the first time in my life on Friday afternoon, I shut down my work computer. I turned off my work phone and I didn't turn them back on until Monday morning. And I had never, ever been able to do that because at C3 and at every other business, I mean, when I was a chiropractor, I actually was the one of the first to ever have an answering service. And I carried a pager back in the day so people could reach me. And let me tell you, you know, when your back goes out, it usually doesn't happen during office hours. It's usually like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. So I, I've always worked 24-7. So this was a new thing for me to actually understand what a weekend is. And I was like, "Wow, I, wow, I, I get amazing. Why, yeah, yeah, I get why people like jobs now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other interesting thing is that I'd always seen from the outside when you sell in enterprise software, I, I always found that you know sometimes people make decisions that don't seem to be in the best interest of the company, and I always felt like it's kind of in their own best interest. And when I was in on the inside, I really got to see how people." Inside of companies, they they like things so much. They love their deal that they build moats around themselves. And experiencing that, it it really opened my eyes up that when you're selling into a company, you, you have to analyze not only what the needs of the company are, but also what are the needs of that person? Because if you don't address that appropriately, they're not going to be your quarterback. They're going to be your blocker. And you don't yeah. want that. Yeah. Especially in B2B sales, enterprise sales, where oh, there's like yeah. a buying committee of and you never know who's going to derail what. I mean, you just sort of get used to it. it, it all B2B sales are like that. It's yeah. it's kind of nutty because you're right. It's like they have their fiefdom and, oh, I need to protect what's mine. How are you going to help me? And what you think could be aligned is sometimes not aligned. I always find that fascinating. It's, it's, the, it's the difference between really understanding human nature and just understanding the product you're selling. It's the human nature and the, the visceral reaction that the people have so important, so important. Oh, it, it totally is. Back in my early days, uh, before mobile phones, I always carried a Palm Pilot. And I had one of the first ones that had the little antenna that you would flip up uh, that would connect to the internet because it wasn't real time. You'd have to flip it up and it would connect and I remember I would go into meetings and I would put that thing down and flip it up and that would help sell. Because if you're in there selling a piece of technology and you had something that was very cool, people would love that. It would, it would, it would help build up belief in your capabilities. So, you know, and, and you're right, the B2B journey, it's so complicated, it, it's, it, it, but it is absolutely positively uh, fascinating. And I, I, 
I love that aspect. So I, I worked, did that for about a year to a year and a half. And, um, but what I found is, it, I mean, it was great. I was part of the leadership team, but like 50 to 65% of my time was spent in meetings yes. and I wasn't doing anything. Yes. And I'm and like 50 to 60% probably you were lucky. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, wow. So I left there about a year ago trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I, and, and the first thing I said is, well, I'm not going to get back into measurement, but what I am going to do is there's all of a sudden, there's a bunch of new companies out there. I'm going to get demos from all of them. I'm going to find one that I really like, and I'm going to, I'm going to back them. I'm going to get on, I'm going to advise them. I'm going to become an investor. This, this will be great. This will be a lot of fun for me to help kind of the next generation. So I got all these demos and I'm like, whoa, I've been out of measurement for like not even two years and everything's gone to hell and everyone's gone backwards. I'm like, what is going on here? It's like all of a sudden everybody believes like the emperor is actually wearing clothes. And I, I was like blown away. So I, I looked at that and I'm like, I, I can't believe this. And then I was talking to my data scientist and we'd always had this idea about, you know, cause in measurement there's, there's, there's before digital, when all there was, was like TV, radio, and print, people used to get their information from places and engage with brands. And there was no direct connection from that exposure to sale, unless they walked in with a coupon, that was it. And so the measurement that they used was probabilistic modeling, and it was called marketing mix modeling, top down, where they would look at correlations between the ads that were in market and the sales, and they would be able to see correlations and say, okay, do more of this. And the output of it was saying, okay, here's your channels. Here's, you know, but even before digital, here's TV, here's radio, here's this, devote X amount of your budget to this and that. And companies would refresh these models once a year, at least they were supposed to. And that would enable their budgets. And then they would go forward with that. There wasn't any uh, detailed information in terms of like what creative or what specific markets or anything like that, but it did uh, help them set budgets. When digital came around, around the time I built C3 Metrics in 2008, all of a sudden you could, everything was addressable. And we had not only when someone clicked on a website, could we track it? But if you saw an ad on the WWE or the New York Times that a customer of ours purchased, we had little pieces of code in there, our tags, and they would be everywhere. They were even on Facebook when Facebook came out. We had tags even on Amazon. And so what that meant is one of our clients could run an ad uh, nine months prior and they could run that ad and see no sales from that ad. And then all of a sudden, nine months later, the sales would come in and we could show it directly. So now we went from this probabilistic modeling to deterministic, 100% deterministic. And it was amazing. But then all of a sudden, Facebook said, yeah, no more tags, which was fine because we had information on Facebook and we built out probabilistic models. Amazon said no more tags, no big deal. Then Snap came along, who didn't allow tags. YouTube said no more tags. And now there's TikTok. And now there's tags pretty much nowheres. So now there's 
there's fewer places that don't take tags than which do take tags. And then add to that the iOS privacy changes. So now Facebook is in the blind about things. You've got uh, privacy regulations that are being rolled out in every single state. So essentially the CCPA, every state has its own version of the CCPA that's rolling out in the next year or so. And then now we have the cookie apocalypse, as we call it, that's coming yep. out next year, where yep. Chrome is going to stop third-party cookies. Yep, so, yep, yep. That's been like rolling for the last couple of years, where they're like, oh, next year. Oh, no, no, next year. Oh, yeah. And then, and then we have one other thing, which is in July of this year, we've got Google is shifting away from regular GA, Google Analytics, yep, to, GA4, to Google right. Analytics 4. Right. And instead of them just updating the code, you have to put new code on. Yeah. And they're encouraging people to do, do it now because people are logging in and they're saying, what the hell is this? Where are my reports? Why do the numbers not align? So we are at a major disruptive point in analytics over the next year to year and a half, sure. where for the first time, people are going to be really questioning the numbers more than ever before. Yeah. And I looked at that and I said, this smells like an opportunity. The timing here is great. And the data scientists that I've been working with, Todd Kirk, who's a freaking genius, mad professor, if you will, of, of modeling. He's absolutely incredible. We've been talking about this concept of you've got, you've got marketing mix modeling, which is top down. You've got multi-touch attribution, which is bottom up at user level. And then you've got what we're calling middle out this middle section where you can, you're not at the channel level, but you're not fully, fully granular, but you give people enough granular data that they can make the right decisions. Because what's happening now is that we're in a world where you can engage with a brand in hundreds of different places every single day, but nothing is connected. So we need advanced modeling in order to get there. And luckily, Todd had been testing this for a period of time, and it actually, uh, Provolytics, the, the, the core engine of Provolytics, is now what PepsiCo uses for their entire, what they call their ROI engine, which measures their global ad spend. And PepsiCo actually just won an ANA, an Association of National Advertisers, yep. a Genius it. Award yep. in December for their ROI engine, which so, is very exciting. So full disclosure. Yeah. So Genius Awards, that's New Star, a TransUnion company. Yes. Genius Awards are run by my firm that oh. I work at now, Decision Council. And to make it even more weird, that's my account. <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. I, I literally, the, the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is I literally like, we work with New Star. Trans, a TransUnion company now. We've done Brave New Worlds. We produced that. We've done the Genius Award. So this is all very top of mind. And what's fascinating about it is this cookie apocalypse, the attribution problem, all of these things, the walled garden, like just name the thrash that is just going on in digital advertising. Specifically, I mean, for, of course, consumer brands amplify this to a level that's just insane but also B2B brands need to worry about this. Like, yeah, you may not have walled gardens, da, 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 da. But look, like as consumer goes, so does business. Like it's a general, like this is like really 
the crucible is in consumer spending on ads specifically and, and just and it's so I'm very familiar with this. This is why it's so cool because this is a huge massive problem that I know you know New Star and TransUnion are dealing with. I know they've got a ton of products and services. There's one they have these clean room ideas about sharing data and attribution and the last year's Brave New Worlds was the trust imperative about trusting brands with your data and, and it's it's a disaster mess that everyone's trying to clean up. So yeah, you're like spot on. <laughs> Just well, it's, spot it's, on. It's, it's, it's a, it's a huge problem, but yeah. going back to what you said about B2B, what mm-hmm. a lot of B2B marketers forget is that their buyers are also consumers. Yes. And their buyers at night when they're sitting at home are, are consumers. And that's why some of the most uh, huge growth brands like, um, is it NetSuite from Oracle? Yeah. Yeah. So the way that NetSuite grew, and I was at a um, an investment conference a number of years ago where I heard the CMO talk. If you ever listened to like, why would NetSuite advertise on Howard Stern? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but they ran tons of radio ads, which are typically a consumer thing that you would do. And it it blew things up for them. And now you're starting to see more and more TV spots and the, the types of things that consumer brands are doing, B2B are doing just as well. The CTV, Facebook, and all of those places. Well, also, I mean, yeah, to, also to your point, I think th- this is the other thing I found interesting is that really good consumer brands have trained us to really appreciate and almost demand great ad and consumer experiences to a level where if you're a B2B company, and you're not providing that, and you've got the same product, basically, I mean, products basically democratized nowadays. I mean, it's really not like, how hard is it, honestly, to build stuff? You got to get it right. But it's really the consumer experience, because everyone's now trained to like expect it. And this is the thing, it's hard. It's so hard for us sometimes to convince our B2B clients. It's like, you got to raise the game, you got to level up your craft on this, because people expect an awesome user experience. I'm sorry. You just can't not do that. They expect thoughtful ads. They expect relevant information to help them make a decision, not being thrown at them, not, you know, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's great. It's, it's just insane. And it's all blending. Yeah. Yeah. And the tough thing is, is that, as you mentioned earlier, it's the B2B journey is a group experience. It's a group buying experience. And so it's, you know, even with deterministic data sets, it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, because of the different devices, workplaces, VPNs, to, to even if we had full connection on everything, to connect it all together. And then how do you add in events as well? I mean, we tried all sorts of different ways at C3. We tried it for a bunch of clients. You know, at, at best, it gave insights. But the reality is, is that for B2B, you're really looking at a probabilistic modeling mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. of thing, but you can track all of that stuff because you're doing events and you're doing media to get people to make inquiries. Yeah. And the website for B2B serves as an educational portal, if you will. 100%. So, so what you're looking for is you're looking for more sessions, unique sessions. Yep. And then, then you've got those stages inside your CRM that are tracking through and you can use those as kind of mini conversion events to analyze that across your media that's in market, the events, 
the emails that go out, uh, conversations that salespeople have that are also tracked in CRMs. There's lots of different ways to be able to look at all of those touch points and then combine them to put them into probabilistic modeling using machine learning to output something that says, hey, do more of this. This other thing is really not making a difference, but you can yeah. do it if you want to. Hard, and hard, you know, what's interesting, it's hard to your point about, so getting the analytics right is hard. Attributions, harder. Understanding what it all means, almost impossible. Because most people don't have a team of data scientists. They don't have the, there's, you, you have to have a certain amount of like curiosity you have to, have to be somewhat data-driven slash data-inspired. And you have to generally like get to the root of, you have to have the, the ego has to go away and say, what's actually working and what's not working. And you have to be able to make a rational decision on that. And, you know, by the nature of marketing, <laughs> you know, I mean, few marketers, honestly, you know, have the kind of background I have where, you know, degree in electrical engineering, semiconductor engineer, designer, like hardcore science where to me, it's just like, what works? I don't, I, I don't have ego in like my favorite campaign. It's like, what works? So hard to do because the, the discipline, the data science discipline is not in marketing. I mean, there are now starting to be folks that are, om- that are almost like, it's like marketing data science type f- people that are, have the marketing, to your point, like marketing mixed with data science, like probably someone like you who sort of, like can play in both areas. And, you know, for, for entrepreneurs and for folks doing startups as an example, B2B space, B2C space, but what you talked about, about attribution, how to set that up, what works, what doesn't work, being data-driven, being really inspired by, look, man, you actually don't know what may or may not work. Here's like, here's a bucket of things you can do for almost every business, it's different. The, the playbook, quote unquote, may be somewhat the same, but you have no idea until you go to your point, see what works, see what doesn't work. And I think the thing that, that it was really cool that you brought up was about this whole probabilistic modeling of it. Not no, How many marketers even talk about, I even know about probability, <laughs> let alone like, we can model that, you know, like it's so important because I think, I mean, I agree with you. It's, there's so much out there that even like you talk about AI and all that sort of stuff, right? The noise level is just going to keep on raising. The bar is keeps on, I mean, it's accelerating. You just can't, It the difference is going to be how well you can analyze data and gain insights and intelligence from it. Like no, no doubt in my mind. Like oh no, you're you're absolutely right. The the tough thing though is, and there's a couple of aspects. One is that you have a whole workforce of marketers whose heads have been in Google Analytics, and everything they do from the way they buy to the way they report is 100% deterministic. I bought X number of impressions. I got X number of clicks. I got X number of sales. So they they need to be reeducated about probabilistic modeling and relating to that. The other piece is the folks that go into data and analytics and data science. Um, Because I'm on the marketing advisory council for Suffolk University in Boston, their Sawyer Business School. And they've got a great 
analytics program, a great marketing program there. And what I recommended to be added to the curriculum for folks in the analytics space is a presentation skills, because <laughs> you can have all of the right answers. 1,000%. Yeah. I'll 1, never forget. 1,000%. I was in an office with the CEO and the, the head of their marketing analytics came in and presented, did a presentation. I think the whole deck was probably 75 pages long, probably went through the first three or four pages and we ran out of time. And uh, I turned to the CEO and I said, what, what do you think? Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty good. And he's like, I, I'm not doing that at all. And I said, why not? He says, because I didn't understand a single thing that person said. Yeah. And that's, and that's yes. the problem is, is yes. that you can have the right answers, and, but if you can't communicate them, your value to the organization is zero. Uh, and so the key is, is trying 100%. to figure out, because what ends up happening is that you may have produced a hundred page slide deck, but your, your, your VP of marketing, they want it in like 10 slides because they then have to take that and present it to the CMO in one slide. And the CMO has to come up with one, maybe two bullet points for the CEO who's going to use it in a board presentation. So you've got to distill yes. down. And yes. it reminds me, yes. reminds me of that TV show. Do you ever watch Project Runway? A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Love Project Runway. And and uh and the designers would be designing. And uh what was his name? The 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 Tim Gunn. Tim Gunn would walk in and he'd look at it and he'd stare at it. And he says, yeah, you know what I think you need to do? And they would be like, what? And he's like, edit. And, and that was always his solution. He, he, so it sounds strange. I was like one of my favorite shows. It's just oh, bizarro because I loved it. everyone's like, why would you like a show about fashion and you're an engineer? And I said, look, creativity on a deadline is the art and science of it all. Like that is next level. That's the right. reason why I love all these like chopping shows and making knives shows, because imagine you're under the gun to create something out of nothing, right? On a deadline, because that's business. It's right. yeah, you could like deadlines are important. That's why I like my author friends and all the ones that are like, oh, I can't write. I can't have the next novel or blah, 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 whatever. I'm like, what I do for a living now, creativity on a deadline, right? Every day, I, people rely on me to exactly what you say. How do I tell this story and three bullet points for the CEO to present to the board? Even though I may have 25 backup slides, what's the big idea? How do I communicate? It's the storytelling of the, it's data storytelling, for lack of a better word, that matters the most. It doesn't matter that you've got reams of data. What the hell does it mean? <laughs> tell me what to do is totally. what everyone says. So, Jari, yeah. what should we do? And I'm like, that's a great question. Here are the three things you should do. And my gosh, that took me days of analysis to say like, yeah, you picked the right topics to go after. And it's like, that's the thing. No, that's the thing that, I mean, as an engineer, we used to just, it would be so funny because engineering and marketing, <laughs> we would fight all the time because they'd be having these stupid features and blah, blah, blah. And we'd be like, the hell are you guys, even, are you guys even like in, you know, and they'd be like, what do you mean? We're we're just like, this is the market demand. I would just get so pissed at them. But, you know, Jeff, uh, this has been really fascinating. I'm so thankful that we got together to talk. Any Anyone who's thinking about advertising, um, attribution, their marketing mix, data-driven, 
what's going to happen with the cookie apocalypse and all the apocalypses that are going to happen. I mean, check, check your stuff out. Of course, I'll put links in the show notes, but just thank you so much. This has been just, I really enjoyed it. So thanks. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to educate us. Thank you, Jerry. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff, for being on the show. What a career, <laughs> like all over the map, but in a good way. You know what I mean? You kind of learn and grow. So thanks again. Now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Jeff. While he earned an advanced degree to become a health professional, Jeff clearly had not let anything stop him from learning the information and tools he found he needed. By jumping in and learning new technology, he made himself invaluable to others while being at the forefront of innovation. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to where, you know, they had one degree and then started working in something else, or it was like they were a journalist and now they're, uh, you know, writing web copy or in marketing or were a doctor and decided this wasn't for me. I mean, it's always good to be curious about different things. So even though you may have got a degree in something else, you know, ask questions like, you know, what, what else am I interested in? What, what's something that I could learn on the side? What, what can I use my base education for to look at other, you know, ways to apply it? So um, just because you went to school for one thing doesn't mean you can't do something else. Jeff sees opportunity while others might see difficulties. Rather than lamenting his injury, he built a business instead. Well, that wasn't satisfying. He pursued his passion in magic. More recently, seeing what was happening with marketing metrics, he jumped in to figure out how to respond. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this whole idea of uh, resilience or founder resilience. And um, this is a great example of that sort of pivoting to new things, being open to different opportunities. So while one area might be closed off to you, it's always important to find those other areas that you could uh, contribute to and maybe even excel at. So even though, you know, the path you're on may not be the path you'll be on forever, it's always good to figure out exactly uh, what, uh, you know, what could be next. So ask yourself questions again, like, what am I interested in that's adjacent to this? If this was were to go away, what would I do? And again, not, not to be, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like negative, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you never know what may happen. Jeff has many accomplishments, but it's clear he values family time. He spoke of wanting to be with his wife and daughter and making choices so that he could do so. He found ways to build the kind of life he wanted, even when unexpected events forced him to jump tracks. Yeah, I mean, just imagine you're a chiropractor that doing all the physical work and then you get injured and can't do it. I mean, that's that could be pretty tough. So um, great example of how to like bounce back and find a different way to go. So there you have it, the actionable insights I learned from my interview with Jeff. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits 
values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.